Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. So I have the questions. Are we talking about Götze too? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about all that. I just, I, I wanted to start actually by just a quick response to you and your hatred for my phone. No, it's, it's just like uh, I read about this and yeah. I was 100% sure that there will be people in my nearer, nearer uh, circumstance that mm-hmm. will jump on this hype train. Mm-hmm. And let's say I bet <laughs> I bet some money that you are one of the first movers here. <laughs> I, I literally spent about three hours yesterday doing Yeah, that. I get it. And I get the hype around it because I really like it. I think it's a game changer for iOS at least. Yeah. You can can you also like change the you can also change the icon for one football, right? You yeah, you can change it. Yeah. Amazing. So that's good. But I think it's nothing that it's not you for you. Start, if you start doing it, mm-hmm. the sixteen Euros are already doing something else. I you know. know. That's how far behind. I even watched <laughs> I even watched YouTube videos about it. <laughs> Of course. If you do something, you go all in. Yeah, you go all in. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, joining me, Ian McCourt, on today's One Football Podcast is Benny Kulhoff. Hello. Later on, we'll have Francesco Porzio on how transfer works and the Athletics Dominic Fifield on Crystal Palace. Uh, just a reminder, in case you missed the last few episodes, we now have two One Football Podcasts. So if you like the Queen and making a cup of tea in response to a crisis, then Monday's Premier League podcast with Manchester's own Dan Burke is the one for you. However, if you're into art house movies with like tasteful nudity and the writings of Albert Camus, then this Euro and World Football one is more up your street. The email remains the same if you want to get in touch and send over any questions. It's podcast at onefootball.com. Benny, mm. uh, how did you enjoy Transfer Deadline Day? It was good fun, especially the deals that happened in the Bundesliga came out of surprise. Some names dropped that were I've never expected. Um, Bayern were very, very active, uh, but also mm. going for cheap shots. So it was a good one for Germany. So we'll, we'll talk about Bayern in a second, but the mm-hmm. really big one was uh, late last night with PSV yeah. Eindhoven. Yes. And Mario Goethe. That was a super surprise. I mean, PSV Eindhoven put some pressure on because I think they had to nominate their Europa League list or their European Cup list. So they they, they hired three players yesterday. And uh, now as he's there, it seems like a perfect fit because they have a German coach. Half of the team is German. Uh, and I think he searched for a place where he can lead. That's my suggestion, where he can at least get back uh, having fun playing football a bit outside the scope of German's media because they are still looking at him as the god uh, who made us the world champion to the world champions and uh, the history showed that all the people that scored a decisive world cup final goal in Germany basically their career went way down afterwards and Götze is on the same road so I think it's a great move for him uh, to develop personally and maybe find back the fun he has on playing football and then he will be if he wants he will be back uh, in a, to at a bigger club exclamation mark so is he he was at Dortmund Yes. Uh, have they sold him or is it a loan deal? Or what's the thinking no, behind he it? Has not, he had no contract. They didn't extend his contract. So he was oh. a free agent. Um, so he was mentioned to, he was even like on the list of Bayern Munich um, and on Hertha BSC, another club that has a lot of money right now in Germany, not mm-hmm. comparable to the English league, but for German circumstances. But uh, yeah, then this move came out of nowhere for everyone. But I think it is for him as a player and maybe as a human being, most importantly, the best move he could do. If he would go to Bayern, 
he would be under the scope and the discussion will be every week why is he not playing what's up with Götze our World Cup hero he's not playing in the Bayern team or whatever if he stays in the Bundesliga oh fuck sorry uh, if he stays in the Bundesliga um, then uh, the discussion will always be there so he just moved to the next country He can. it's a one hour drive home to Dortmund where he's living um, so it's a great move for him and he has a great coach there PSV is a great club I mean the history of PSG uh, PSV sorry not PSG <laughs> Uh, brought out a lot of players. You and me as Ronaldo lovers. Mm, he, was, he was growing there. Romario grew there. Uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy grew there. Uh, Ibrahim Afilai, one of my best Schalke signings ever, uh, grew there. Ian Robben got big there. So there is a chance to develop even as a World Cup striking winner or just have a nice time in the it, Netherlands. It is amazing that he goes from wonder kid to uh, World Cup winner to mm-hmm. free agent. Yeah, that's quite a downfall for him. Maybe the rise was too fast, right? He was a great player at Dortmund under Jurgen Klopp. Then he had too high expectations uh, when he comes to Bayern Munich. It went wrong. It went wrong at Munich, right? It went. It went badly wrong at Munich. Yeah, I mean, he played a lot. He was just under under appreciated. I would say he played a lot. He had a great. He had great stats. I don't have them here, but like he was a good goal scorer, a good assist maker. But it wasn't enough for someone who was named a wonder kid. You know, we all expected, or the the, the Germans expected him to be like equal than Messi, or like in the World Cup final, even better than Messi. So if you are, if you, this is the expectation, you can only fail. Um, and I would say he hasn't failed. He has won a lot of titles. Uh, he has won a lot of things. He, he scored at the World Cup. He's a world champion. So there is a discussion right now in Germany with, between fans that if you want to say uh, a failed footballer, then you have to mention Marco Royce more than uh, than Mario Götze because Mario Götze won everything, while Marco Royce has won. I think he has won one title, uh, but he's way more loved by the people here than Mario Götze. Yeah, Royce is more loved. Morales is way more loved, yeah, because he's more respected. I don't know why. I think Mario Götze is a clever guy. The the move from Dortmund to Bayern back in the days was uh, not well received by even fans who are not fans of Borussia Dortmund because it was just right before the Champions League mm. final against Bayern Munich. It was a typical Bayern transfer to buy the best player of their biggest rivals. And like he went there and from this moment on he was more like a person that you love or hate that's the there's nothing in between you know so you think he's a great player or you think he's like overrated and um, this is in this uh, two sides i think he got lost a bit i still think he's a great player but he needs to have fun on the pitch and maybe he gets it back in the netherlands i and hope so royce probably gets bonus points for uh, loyalty as well right well yeah loyalty is one thing yeah but he's a good player too but like he's not the player who who decided games while Mario Götze makes the difference in several games in the past. Mm. Uh, so speaking of uh, of Bayern, um, I just want to ask: Is everything okay over there? You know, they're they're losing to Hoffenheim. They need a late mm-hmm. goal against Hertha. They're struggling to control games. They're fourth in the league, although that is only a point behind Leipzig uh, yeah. and and the rest. Uh, but I guess everything is not okay, and that's why they're splashing out so much on on deadline day. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that they went from the best club in the world like four weeks ago to now a struggling fourth league fourth <laughs> position losing to Hoffenheim team, which is exactly the same team. It is not. They lost some crucial players, and it's, maybe they underestimated the the loss of Thiago already. And I think he's not easy to. Re- to replace even with four or five players because he was a, a center stone of the success and also of the play style um, and they didn't have like 
much time to recover. This is something to take in mind. So they basically play now the second season in a row with the playstyle they had, very aggressive, um, high pressing, not give up, score the sixth, the seventh, the eighth goal uh, before like uh, before like getting calm in a game. This uh, eats a lot of energy out of the players' bodies, and I think that's what they openly say. Like Goretzka, Lewandowski, they all say, okay, we are at the maximum or even over it. Um, so they they went on the transfer market, bought some players, which are, let's say, not biotypical transfers. I don't know how to, how to judge it. I would say it's clever ones because they are all just additions to the existing team but it's also the ones that didn't make a difference so the big strength of Bayern the last season was that they had a complete squad every position was twice even three uh, they have a big depth in this so three mm -hmm. people can play the same position but they lose some crucial players and I don't know if they replaced them uh, accurately let's say like this I mean at least they have a backup for Lewandowski but I would say the rating from Lewandowski to Max, Eric Maxim Chupomoting is interesting. So there is a big uh, difference in how they play and how they score and which kind of players they are. But at least they they brought them depth in their team. And I'm interested to see. I mean, they win the championship in German anyway. That's not the discussion. But they were on the hype train. And I'm not sure if they can, if their season uh, will end completely. We never know next summer um, if Bayern is winning all three titles again. I would say no. Chopo Moting is interesting. His agent... His agent is not getting paid enough, is, is what I would say. It's absolutely crazy. He, he was, was at Stoke a couple of years ago. And Schalke. Was he was at Schalke, yeah. He was like at Schalke. And uh, I admired him in the beginning because he is like a very smooth player. Like he can, uh, he can, um, has a lot of tricks. He can take the ball, block it for other people to come to him to, to get the ball. He's an assist maker. He's less a scorer, I would say. Mm. And he has a smooth play style. I once did, I did an interview with him. He's a nice person, like a funny guy. Um, he's also one guy that you want to have in your team because like he's making fun. Like he, he looks after others and, and everything. He's not like an ego egoist. Mm -hmm. Egoist, the right word. Yeah, I know where you're going yeah. with it. Yeah. He's not egocentric, I would say. So it's a great addition, let's say like this. But yeah, he went from uh, Mainz 05, Schalke 04 to Stoke City, and then suddenly he came out to PSG, where he was highly hired because of Thomas Tuchel, which was his former coach, and he know the quality of oh, him. Oh, uh, he had him at Mainz, did he? Yes, he had him mm. in mind. He's speaking French, so this was also a thing important enough for for PSG, I would say. Maybe also for Bayern, they have a lot of French players. Maybe this is also something like that he can work there as a bit of a of a connection maker. Mm. And yeah, I think it's someone you want to have in your team, but you cannot expect like him being the game changer or him throwing into the game and he makes the difference. That's definitely not him. Maybe Douglas Costa is going to be the game changer. Yeah, another very interesting well, transfer. Where did that come out of? It is interesting. There is a quote from Uli Hoeneß, the legend, the god of Bayern Munich, the one, if he says something, it's set, set in stone. When they uh, released him or sold him to uh, to Juventus a few years ago, he, of course, like Uli Hoeneß doing it with former players, I'm looking at Juan Bernat, he, he kicked him in the ass from Bayern ass. He said, like, well, he has not the mindset for Bayern Munich. He's only looking at the money. He's not a fit for Bayern Munich. 
And suddenly he's back. He's a fit for Bayern Munich. They praise him a lot because they say the team has said we want Douglas Costa instead of another player. He's good for us, for our play style. He's a great replacement. <laughs> and so they they brought him back. I think Uli Hoeneß, I bet he gives a shit what he said yesterday, but um, uh, I think uh, it's a bit like a, a middle finger in the face of Uli Hoeneß that he has nothing to say in the club on transfer side now. It's interesting how how political and how strategic the transfers can be at Bayern. Like you bring in Chapo Moteng, maybe, you know, he, he speaks a bit of French, can kind of bring the squad together a bit more. Then you bring in Costa to maybe, you know, just take a dig at uh, at early Hernes. Yeah, and he, uh, Doc Costa is the difference maker. So he can make one move that changes the game. He's like clearly a replacement for Serge Gnabry or uh, Sané if they are uh, not playing. Mm. But like if you throw him in, it's a surprise effect. It's more a surprise effect than Chupomuting, I would say. So he's a good addition, I would say. But it's a surprise because even for Costa, I mean, he got kicked in the ass by the boss of the club and now he's coming back, which basically shows his mentality that he just wants to have titles and money, which is fine. Yeah, uh, at least he's that. open to it. So it's nothing nothing, nothing to complain about. So um, it's an interesting transfer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, quite a lot going on at Bayern then, but I, you reckon that the, the, it won't be an issue for the Bundesliga anyway, no need to worry about no, that. No, it's no. typical Bayern, maybe they have a bad start, but then they have this 20-game 20, 20 season uh, win <laughs> streak, so they will win the championship for sure, there is no discussion that any club can reach them, not even Dortmund, which are not stable enough, Leipzig is not stable enough to, to, to be ready for the title. Um, so Bayern is a clear title winner, um, but let's see how they how they act in Europe. Okay, so we mentioned Leipzig; they had a, a fairly convincing win at the weekend over mm. over this club called Schalke No Fear. You, you might have heard of them. Not, they're not having the best start to the season. Uh, one goal scored, fifteen conceded, and rooting to the bot rooted to the bottom of the table. Mm. What's going on there, Benny? Nothing, I would say. <laughs> the club in every in every corner, the club is dead. So we, the club has no money. He has a big discussion about uh, who is leading it. Uh, so the former president, boss, and mastermind of everything, Clemens Turnius, uh, was released, or he. He, he he raised himself basically mm. after a lot of things happening racism like he was uh, highly connected to covid cases because he's a big meat mogul in germany and like he was just someone that no one wants anymore at schalke 04 um, so fans were going on the streets protesting and then he finally said okay i'm leaving and this was a bit of a hope that then they also the mentality within the club changed but it didn't because basically only the head leave left, but the body is still there. Uh, so all the people he brought in to fulfill his dreams um, are still acting there and they're acting kind of headless right now. Um, it's absolutely clear that Schalke has no money to make the squad better. Um, they hired a squad that is not a squad. It's a, a, a group of single players. They all have their own agenda. No one is like looking at the, the big success. Um, and it, they just play shit football. That's it. But they play shit football since 10 years. So that's not a huge difference to fans. But uh, in the past years, the fans were loyal, saying, okay, at least they fight. But right now, it's just you look in dead eyes. Every player, every player is is dead. Uh, every kind of they don't have any offensive power. Defensively, they are horrible. Uh, they do decisions on the pitch, uh, um, like game decisions. The old, the former coach David Wagner did decisions on personal, which are like I don't know. No one, no one understood it. 
They send away a lot of players last season on loan uh, because they don't want them anymore. Then they got back and suddenly they are starting players and the, the coach is praising them openly in the media, while the others who were there last year was like openly called out by him. So th I think the team is dead. There is no structure. There's no team culture, no team spirit in there. And it's looking very scary. So it's it's a possibility that Schalke and Lofia will not be a Bundesliga club next season. Well, yeah, this is what I wanted to ask. I, I think Helga might have mentioned this in our yeah. in our preseason preview that they are potential candidates candidates to get relegated. Yeah. Does it does the club sort of need that in order to kind of you know do the on off trick? I'm not a friend of this theory that when you get uh, relegated, you refresh your you refresh your club and your mindset. I think uh, this the history shows that this is not working. I think there's more fear if if they go down and even lose the TV money, the last the last money they really make to to get their debts sold, um, then this whole club can collapse completely. So uh, mm. if they go down, I think there's a possibility that they go down for even further or stay a second league club if it stays everything like this which is weird because they have the best talent academy since ages um so uh, i don't know i don't understand i have my own agenda how to how to make this club better but no one is listening to me <laughs> did you want to give did you want to give a, a quick uh a brief to our listeners about what that assessment might be but the, the key thing is the season is done this team is shit and uh, what why don't you throw in all your talents you have give them playtime and let develop them during a season in a real-time experiment like in a football manager what what can you lose at least they can lose four nil every game but the current team is doing it the same so why don't you let the young players go in they have a heart they want to play for the club they want to fight their ass off to get pro pro players fans why would be fans would be behind them fans would be behind them they all understand if you lose like six nil or eight nil against Bayern Munich if you're a U23 team why don't you throw them in and find out two or three players who maybe ready for the next season and then you can build a team a cheaper team way around them now we are playing like players uh, no one wanted at the club players who got a lot of money and we cannot get uh, rid of like uh, Nabil Bentaleb for example um, he don't he don't want to be there he don't want to play he has a great contract well I wouldn't leave Schalke Nolfi if I had that contract that's absolutely clear but why don't you throw in more talents who are dedicated to that club who wants to play rather than play letting all these I don't know soldiers play who doesn't give a shit and are, are gone next season anyway hmm. have you thought of emailing the club with this idea or I throw it out on Twitter no one replied to me in Schalke <laughs> Mafia. Uh, so I think this is a clear message. Despite your viral success on, uh, on Tuesday Mario evening. last night, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. well done. Pretty uh, good. Yeah, very good. I mean, uh, viral is... You went viral. Yeah, you not, all know that. Yeah. I, have, I had 600 likes on my tweet, which is viral in my life. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. Look, Benny, small yeah. steps. You'll get there. No, it's nothing I aim for, but it's a nice feeling. Yeah, you'll People get... recognize me now in the digital world. <laughs> they come up and talk to you on Twitter, dude. <laughs> uh, speaking of Leipzig, I thought they'd struggle without Werner. Doesn't seem to be the case. They're doing, they're doing pretty well. Yeah, I think... Although it is early days. No, I think it's an upside for them to lose Werner because they have a team full of... Uh, first of all, I hate Leipzig. I hate everything that is about the club and I hate, all this, I hate all the marketing around it. But if you're just purely looking at their football, I think it's good for them to... That Werner is not in that team anymore. Because now a lot of players who... Like they had a lot of... Like, you know, you play a long ball, Werner is doing a sprint, he's winning the sprint, he's scoring the goal. Mm. But now they have can develop a play culture that is maybe more 
more what uh, Julian Nagelsmann has in his brain. They're very flexible in the offense. They have a decent defense. And I think they, they will develop something that is nice to look at but to hate from an infrastructural and ethical way. Yeah. I mean, Nagels, Nagelsmann is smart enough to, to think around that, basically. I think he has a plan. He already had a plan. And mm. I think he was one of the happiest people that Werner is finally gone. They got they, they got not rid of him, but now he can develop a team that he really wants to develop. It's, it's a weight off his shoulder, too, because you're getting asked about Werner every week. Is he going? Is he staying? Is he part yeah. of the team? Is he committed? That must be a, a, a drain on the dressing room and on the manager. You just don't need it. Yeah, I think what they want is a team without big names. They, because the brand is the biggest name they want to present. They want a great team which plays great football, but without stars. And this is what they currently have. I mean, the biggest name they might have is Emil Forsberg. And mm. uh, that's it. That's it, basically. So they have a lot of no names, let's say. There's no star, I would say. Some national players, of course, but even they, you wouldn't recognize them on the street. No one knows the faces of these players. So they want they want a great team playing great football so that the amazing brand that they present and they all are therefore is presented all over the world this is the the strategy behind it if you were walking in the street and uh, you bumped into Max Cruiser would you recognize him of course I admire Max Cruiser for everything he's doing we uh, myself and Helga were talking about him a, a few weeks ago he is of course our favorite veteran striker stroke poker player uh, how is he getting on at Union he, he scored at the weekend didn't he yeah, he scored at the weekend. He's a veteran in your eyes. That's great already. He's living like quite close to me. So there's a chance. Yeah, a friend of mine met him already on the street. Okay. Um, so he's living... Well, he uh, must be in his 30s. Is he, Max Cruiser? Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but like... Veteran striker. I mean, if you... The age... <laughs> the, the, the years he played are not the ages he's old because he was so much injured and I don't know, whatever. So... Uh, but a good getting, sign. I, we thought he'd be a good signing for Union. It's perfect. Well, for Union, first of all, he's a great marketing signing, but he's also a player. I would never, I would never have thought before the season that he is going to Union. I was thinking about Welsh. Maybe he's one for Schalke. Maybe he's going back to Werder Bremen to rewrite the story. But then he goes to Union, and it's a great fit because they let him do what he wants. He's a free mind let's say like this he's doing what he wants so he's playing poker he has a race team um he's what, a race team yeah he has his own race team uh he has uh, he's going out a lot which is filming this on instagram a lot of instagram stories where he goes for food or just running around having breakfast in cafes and like he's a player who lives within the people and who wants to live within the people he's also engaged a lot in like um, an organization called viva Conagua in germany who's fighting for like water for people in africa for people who have no access to uh who have not access to 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 drink water mm -hmm. so he's, he's socially engaged so it's a perfect fit to a club to like union berlin who is of course, itself a fan club and also a club who is engaging a lot for people who don't have much. And I think, well, he earns a lot. He's driving a Bugatti in military colors. And so uh, not really. he's, not, he's not the, the decent, like a, a calm down person. He's a, he's a bling bling guy, but with the heart in the right, right position. So um, I love the move. I love him to be, be in the Bundesliga and he seems to be a good fit. So, yeah, well, he's scoring goals. That's a good start. He's scoring goals. He can lead a team, but I think he's also saying like, "Well, I don't have to play any week. Every week, I'm fine if I play sometimes or if I'm a starter or not, because I've reached everything I want. I have more than football in my life. And how great is this if you're a professional footballer and can say football is not everything in my life? And mm. um, and he doesn't even have a family. Look at this. Oh. 
Yeah. What, what a jerk. Um, <laughs> any other any other Bundesliga talking points you want to raise? Well, Dortmund, they all hype Dortmund now. The new big team, Haaland and Reina. Uh, oh, after one win. After one win. <laughs> and But Dortmund is not stable enough to, to compete with Bayern Munich. They have a very young team. And I think this is also part of the calculation. They play great football. They play eight great games. And then they lose like 4-0 against Mainz 05 out of nowhere because they're not stable enough. But it's fine. It's nice to look. Um, they built a team that I'm jealous of as a Schalke fan, I would say, because they have all the young people they signed them, they developed them, they are growing there, and then they sell them for a lot of money to get new people in. Mm-hmm. That was something that Schalke could have done and started 10 years ago. They missed it. Now they are there while Dortmund is playing Champions League consistently and having a great-looking team. So, um, But don't expect them to win the title. Rain is looking good, too. He had a couple of assists at the weekend. Yeah, I just found out that down. he's the son of the American international... Uh, it was Giovanni Reina? Giovanni Reina? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that was known no, though, no? It's not just Zipper Reina. There's another Reina who played at Dortmund, but it was the other one. Was his mother also a famous sports star, I think, as well? No, like, that's Rihanna. That's the singer. He's someone else. It sounds similar, but uh, it's not his mother. Ah, okay. All right. Well-placed joke. Thank you for not laughing in the court. It makes me feel odd. <laughs> That's what young people call cringe, you know? Uh, well, I'll put in a, I'll put in some comedy side effects, <laughs> oh, there, nice uh, sound thing. effects there. Just to take them from take them from the Bill Cosby show. They were the best. <laughs> the Bill Cosby show. <laughs> I haven't heard that mentioned in about twenty years. Heathcliff Huxtable. <laughs> uh, okay, Germany. Germany playing Turkey, Ukraine, oh, yeah. Switzerland. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your enthusiasm level is at a 10 for that one, I can imagine. Well, oh, I, I think we all agree that this international break is the biggest fuck up in football history. Because Terrible no timing. one needs it. Every team says we're only doing it because we are forced to do it by the UEFA. So it's a pure money thing. Uh, and why are people traveling? You don't need this. Yes, they have to travel all over Europe. Then they let fans in the stadium. 300 fans, I think, are allowed for the game against Turkey, which is absolutely ridiculous. Why don't you just shut down everything? Don't even show it on TV to show the UEFA we don't want it. Don't don't play. That's it, basically. Don't play. Use the time for training. Do training sessions, open training, training whatever you want, but it's absolutely pointless. And the German team also is struggling because they are losing more and more fans here in Germany. So it's interesting to see that they are currently trying trying to do like a little marketing and PR, like being the nice players and the clever players. Why are they uh, losing Why are they losing fans? That's interesting. Because they they were like developed to a marketing machine over the post-World Cup win, I would ah, say. The okay. whole phrasing of the Mannschaft and uh, all this stuff. And the people are not believing them anymore because they are like... There are no like there there are no faces there anymore. Their Schweinsteigers are gone. The Lams are gone. People they they have stories with. Um, the only player you can tell a story with is uh, Manuel Neuer. So the German team doesn't have faces and personality. They are just there for marketing reasons, and that's why people are not going to the games anymore. Um, that's why even without COVID, that's why I'm doing something like they they created a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire show that's uh, being screened on Monday only with the national team, and. They're not doing this, just doing this, but they also have the manager who says like, yeah, we are doing this to show that we have clever people in the team who are socially engaged. So, you know, it's super awkward. (laughs) Like, do it when you want to do it, but don't explain to the people why you do it because this is super awkward. But yeah, okay, they do it. So, um, So now, and this is the interesting thing, the national team has to get back their fans in a situation where they are not allowed allowed to have 
contact to their fans or to actually get people in the stadium. So uh, they also went out and say, in the next game, when the fans uh, when the fans are allowed to be back, we do an historical uh, free ticket match where everybody can attend. Well, of course, because you play in 40,000 people stadiums and only 10,000 people are coming anyway, so you can give away 30,000 tickets for free. It's not an historical move. It's just you want to have a full stadium and that's why you're doing it. If, mm. if people would buy the tickets, you would never give them away for free. So it's an interesting thing, not on the pitch. It's rather than how the the team itself is placed in fan love in Germany. Okay. That was a long monologue. I hate the German team. Just side side note. Yeah, I think I think we got that. I like the players, but I don't hate. I hate the machine behind it. Okay, well that's okay. Okay, thank you, Benny. I thank you, Ian. Now this week saw the closing of the transfer window, but how do transfers work? Who's behind it all, and how much say do the players really have? Who knows? Well, I certainly don't. But one person who does, and who's a <sighs> Principally because he's a part of so many of them is Francesco Portio. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back. It is always lovely to have you on. Um, so you are intimately involved with all of these transfers from, you know, Ibra to everybody. Uh, so let, let's let's go from the very, very beginning. Where does it all start? Is it with the player? Is it with the agent? Is it with the club? Where does it begin? Uh, I would say that right now uh, it's more complicated to say where it starts because might be... Uh, all of these parties involved and be the club who need to sell the, uh, the, the player for financial reasons, might be the, the player who wants to move, might be the agents who want to move the player. So it can be all the three things combined or of course when there is like a player uh, deciding to leave. But I would say that um, there is no like one specific scenario that happens every time. Like it's very case by case uh, thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, it depends. Like in the case of Uh, for example Barcelona this summer it was the club who decided to part ways with with uh, with some of the some of the players like Luis Suarez Arturo Vidal uh, Rakitic uh, and in the case of Messi for example was the player who wanted to move but as you can see it's not the the, the player who always decide and Messi I think is an extraordinary example of this And when, like in these sort of corona times when there's different financial imperatives for the club, is it is it more that the club in this transfer window or the, the previous transfer window, is it that the club is moving players on a bit more? Uh, yeah, for sure. Like uh, Fabio Paratici, who is the sport director of Juventus, said at the beginning of the transfer window, we need to be creative as sport director right now because we need to, you know, think about solutions that before were not even uh, possible, like swap deals, for example, Artur to Juventus and uh, Miralem Pjanic to Barcelona. It's something that was unpredictable six months ago, uh, but now it became normality. Uh, for sure, clubs are in a situation where it's very difficult to sell players so need, they need to find a compromise that's why Barcelona they decided to part company with players because mm -hmm. they couldn't find a club that was uh, willing to pay the fee plus the salary for 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 example Rakitic or or Suarez so mm -hmm. that's why they part company with players you know and um, yeah so um, for example in the Premier League now you are seeing a lot of uh, um, uh, for example uh, buyout option obligation to buy there is something that you were not used to see before if I'm if I'm if I'm not wrong uh, while for example in Italy where the financial crisis hit football even before the Premier League and the coronavirus uh, we are used to see this a lot 
this creativity in terms of transfers. And uh, now it's become something very common everywhere. Yeah, two two things from that. I, I remember there used to be a lot more swap deals when there wasn't as much money in the game. So it's sort of interesting to see them come back, like in the case of uh, Pjanic uh, and Barcelona. And I guess we can probably see more of those as we go on. But the the uh, option to buy, or not the option to buy, um, the sort of you, the clause that you have to buy the player after a certain amount of time. Or oh, that's the, that's the obligation. The to obligation buy, yeah. to buy, yeah, this yeah. clause. That's a new one for me, but you say it's been in Italy for a while. Yeah, it's been in Italy for a while. And for example, uh, the, 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 in Italy is very common, uh, for example, the Chiesa deal to Juventus. Uh, it's an obligation to buy of two years loan plus obligation to buy, but the obligation to buy only if there is like a, um, like for example, if Juventus go to the Champions League, if Chiesa scores more than 10 goals, there are three conditions. And if uh, Juventus or Chiesa reached one of these three conditions, then it will be obligation. Otherwise, it's an option to buy. It's crazy, I know, it's it's mental and might be, it's, uh, it's very complicated to hear. But uh, I mean, that's that's even more interesting from my side, from the journalistic side, you know, because it's uh, there is more to, to look into it. And uh, it's very, very interesting. And they do it for just for financial reasons. That's mm-hmm. the only reason why they do it. Because uh, you, a club like Juventus, uh, sorry, I just say this, uh, a club like Juventus uh, who cannot afford this sum a player like Chiesa, like paying the salary and the fee, they basically uh, divide the, the fee in three years. So <laughs> they have three years to pay what Fiorentina asks. So uh, that's a smart way to do business, in mm. my opinion. And I guess then with these, with these stipulations that go with the obligation to buy... That sort of gives clubs an opt-out way too. They could, they could say, they, I'm sure they could put pressure on the manager, say, "Hey, don't pick him," you know, in case he scores a certain <laughs> yeah, amount that, of goals, right? That's very common. Also, uh, if I think, if you think about, I uh, remember when Aquilani was uh, was at Juventus uh, from from Liverpool, if I'm if I'm mm, not wrong, yeah. uh, on loan, and uh, there was the obligation to buy uh, after like uh, three games. He's, he played like 29 games and then he never played again. Uh, and then, and then uh, <laughs> there are a lot of these cases. Uh, there was uh, in Italy even like not famous players, so I'm not going to mention them right now. But there are there are a lot of these cases. Uh, it's not like it's not like the club put pressure on the of the manager. I think it's both the manager from the beginning of the season know that he has to play 30, 30 games. Uh, so he probably he also decides if he wants him next season or not. Okay, so I. The player or the agent of the club has decided that you know the next that player has to move on. Where do, what's the next steps from there? How does it work? Uh, basically, uh, officially, uh, the talks between agents and clubs have to start after the clubs agree to 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 the to the deal. But uh, we all know that this is not the case anymore. This is not happening at all. It's always actually the agents who are contacted by the club who sell players. That's also something very interesting that nobody nobody says. But uh, uh, a lot of agents are, for example, I want to sell. Uh, uh, let me think about a player that uh, needed to go, like uh, Suarez. I, I want to to sell Suarez to Atletico Madrid. Barcelona contact an agent who help him. 
to to find a way to 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 agree to this deal and then of course these agents get a commissions from from Barcelona to this so like agents are not always also important to buy players but also to sell players and uh, that's also I think very interesting and then um, to answer your question uh, after 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 they agree to um, to the deal, of course, the clubs talk and they find the agreement. And then when all the things are agreed, they go to medicals and then uh, the transfers is done. Right. But that that's quite fascinating that the that the club might actually employ a, essentially a seller to get rid of a player that they don't want. <laughs> because transfer market, Ian, and that's, uh, that's what I always say, it's much more difficult to sell players rather than to buy players. Because everyone is, is good to buy players. I'm good in FIFA and football manager <laughs> to buy players, you know. But then when it comes to sell players, that's a difficult part. Because maybe this year, 60 millions for one player seem a lot. But maybe next year it's not a lot, and maybe it's the opposite. Milinkovic Savic was meant to be sold by Lazio two years ago, two years ago for 100 million, and uh, and the, the uh, Lazio president said no to 80 million. And today, 80 million for Milinkovic Savic, 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 are a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So you know, it's very difficult to sell players, and that's why agents are also part of this kind of uh, movement. And is there a better fee for the agent if they're a seller? Or if they're a buyer agent? Well, that, that of course depends on the player. Okay. And it depends on how yeah. much money uh, we're talking about, the player they, that we're talking about. But let's say that generally um, the, the, the clubs uh, are willing to pay more to sell a player or an agent rather to buy a player because they are already paying money you know, to, to, for a player. So <laughs> they're, right. they're willing to get rid of a player. They, they're, if they're really desperate, they're willing to, to, to pay a lot, for sure. And so when it comes to like players' contracts, um, are they already agreed by the time the clubs talk? Yeah, that's, I mean, as I said, this should be the opposite, but most of the times, Chiesa, I, I think it's, Chiesa uh, to Juventus is a perfect example, not just for, for this question, but for many other questions, because it's a very complicated deal, but at the end, very easy. So Juventus and Chiesa reached an agreement last summer, so 2019, summer 2019, Juventus and Chiesa already had an agreement. Everything was done. Everything was all set. But then Fiorentina changed the, the, the ownership. Uh, Rocco Commisso, the Italian-American owner, arrived. And basically, he promised to Fiorentina fans, I'm not going to sell Chiesa this summer. So it was a matter of, you know, how uh, you uh, say, to respect for, for himself. You know? So they, he decided to postpone the, the Chiesa deal to this summer. And so this summer, yes, they rediscuss, of course, the deal because of the corona uh, impact on football and financial crisis. But the, 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 the deal with Chiesa was already done for Juventus. Right. Okay. And uh, the, how big a say does the player get in uh, where they go? Can they can they reject can they reject course, the club as well? Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think about uh, uh, Miralem Pjanic was meant to go to Chelsea this summer. There was a swap deal with uh, Jorginho already in place. Oh really? When Sarri, yeah, when Sarri was the manager, and uh, then Pjanic said, "No, I'm not going to to to, to Chelsea. I want to go to Barcelona." So the, the deal didn't didn't go further. But think about, I mean, of course, the the more the, the more players are famous are, the more voice they have in the deals think about Zlatan Ibrahimovic <laughs> mm. and he, he decides where he goes 
But then it's not always the case. Think about Messi. Messi is the most famous, most popular player in the world. He didn't decide where to he didn't he, um, where to where to go this summer. So. Right. Okay. Uh, that was quite interesting that Pjanic was going to Chelsea. You've you've yeah. thrown you've thrown a curveball in there. I didn't realize that one. <laughs> uh, so when it comes down to like um, the fee and the clauses that you've mentioned already, um, who decides the fee or, or what decides the fee? Is well, is there like uh, a, is there like a formula for it, or is it just no, the clubs just randomly agree on it? No, it, honestly, it's impossible to 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 say who decides the fee because it's also the transfer market who decides the fee of the players. Uh, think about three years ago uh, when the basically when the when the Salah and Van Dijk and Coutinho there was that, that triangle, no, mm-hmm. uh, that that kind of transfer market changed completely the the, the, the fee offered the next. Windows, and then of course, uh, like because the, the prices after the Coutinho deal to Barcelona completely uh, increased with no sense. Probably, uh, it became like a bubble, financial bubble. Uh, now, of course, the coronavirus. Uh, I would fi- I would say that uh, it. Uh, is kind of helping this situation because uh, we are we were in a point uh, on a point where the bubble was about to explode probably, and now the corona cri- uh, uh, crisis is for sure uh, changing the fees and uh, that that for sure helps for the few, on a long term uh, the transfer market to to not collapse at one point. Okay, you often hear that you know the name of agents being dragged through the mud, and we're told that they're the scourge of the club, or the, the scourge of the game. But what is their what's their role in all of the in all of this then? You mean the role of the agent in general, or yeah, the, because the, because the, because they're often they're often you know seen as the bad guy. But I guess that's that's a little bit their role, right? <sighs> Honestly, I think uh, we are we are going another direction right now. Uh, I think we are we are moving from. Uh, of course, what you're saying is right because agents were always seen like uh, the bad part of football, uh, as Alex Ferguson probably will agree. But uh, <laughs> we are moving in a direction where uh, agents are part of this world as much as clubs, as much as players. That's why you are seeing a social boom also of agents. You know, people know more the agents than the clubs. One point, because uh, <laughs> people know who is Minoraira, who is, uh, uh, for example, uh, these these big agents. I say Minoraira because he's probably one of the most famous. But all the minor agents are very much known right now, uh, because also they want, of course, to be to be known, and they want to be part of the game uh, also in a in a good part, not also like uh, the bad people who ask for money. Mm. And you hear so obviously one of the, the main uh, parts of the transfer window is that these you know the stories that come out the rumours that come through uh, you know that come throughout during the days um, who is it that's leaking all of these I'm guessing it's the agent or is it the agent forcing the club or is it the club forcing the agent or who, no, who, who can be trusted with this sources sources are from everywhere uh, sources are you know uh, I would say that most of the clubs want to keep it secret what they do so clubs uh, from an official side they never say uh, okay we confirm this until it's done so clubs are always uh, difficult to, to reach out of course agents are are, are, are part of this so they also be 
are involved in this and of course they are they are also sources uh, but it's not always uh, it's not there's not like a rule you know especially right now we live in a in a in a world where social media completely changes this so for example if uh, an agent meets with uh, the sport director of inter milan in a restaurant uh, in uh, in rome so it's not even in milan uh, probably the the waiter or someone that is in the restaurant recognizes them and send the picture to some journalist and so they are <laughs> it's not top secret anymore because now we live in, the, in this world where everything is public so it's difficult to to, to keep it secret but there are cases where where clubs are and agents are are good enough to keep it secret until it's uh, it's basically done like the Akimi deal to Inter Milan was secret until until the day it was announced basically uh, one final question then um, how important is the medical is it just for show or do they actually have to do proper medical stuff in medicals, it? medicals are crucial are, are more, more important than what people think they're not just like a, a routine uh, to, to get the deal done uh, I would say especially for players who had previous injuries uh, and so it's it's very much uh, important relevant uh, I remember for example when Patrick Schick was uh, was uh, was doing medicals with Juventus and then they found some problems with his heart and uh, they, they decided to postpone it and then at the end he went to Roma uh, medicals are, you know, are not as easy as people think. Are not just a routine. Are part of the of the transfer of the deal. And uh, and medicals are, you know, when when I, I, I some sometimes uh, I remember I talked with an agent who told me every time I, I go to every time I, one of my players go to for medicals I go to pray because you know I need to. <laughs> at that point, I, I, I nothing is on my hands. You know, I can do anything. It's just about uh, you know the club and it's medical so uh, it's, uh, it's not like uh, something uh, not like a routine like people think lovely thank you Francesco thank you Ian as always So as part of the new approach, each week we're going to talk to a friend of the pod about their club, how they picked a team, the history, the greatest moments, the greatest players, and of course, look at some of the issues around the club today. This time, we take a trip to South London and Crystal Palace with the Athletic senior writer, Dom Fifield. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, very good, Dom. So why Palace? What, what got you behind them? Well, I, <laughs> I lived over the road. <laughs> right, so you didn't have a choice. <laughs> no, well, not really. I mean, my parents weren't into football, although my, my mother is... Um, who who was Simon Jordan's dentist? Simon Jordan being one of the owners of Crystal Palace in the uh, early two thousands. Um, she sub- she is now a season ticket holder and has been for a number of years. Um, but at the time when I was growing up, my parents weren't weren't football fans in the slightest. But the, the and this is going to sound incredibly geeky and daft. But uh, South Norwood, where Palace is situated, is is not the greatest part of London. It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's fairly tatty. Um, but uh, for some reason or other, probably because I went to school in a in a slightly posher part of uh, South London, I, I became fiercely proud of of my South Norwood roots. Um, and to be honest, the only thing that that stood out in South Norwood, the only thing that made South Norwood even vaguely interesting, was Crystal Palace Football Club. So I, it was really more born of that than anything else. I started going to watch them and sort of attached to them. And uh, I mean, I could see into the ground from my bedroom window. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, the, the days as a, as a kid growing up, I'd have the radio when, when I was, you know, I wasn't quite young, old enough to be going to the to Palace on my own. I'd, um, 
have the radio on for an evening game and I'd, I'd, I'd sit there and in, in do my homework on the floor in my bedroom and I would hear the goal going in with the crowd noise coming in through the open window in the middle of winter uh, pissing my parents off with the heating bills etc <laughs> and then they'd obviously go to the because Palace never had a live commentary they'd, they'd then go to the reporter at the ground on the radio and you'd, you'd then hear the confirmation of what you already knew um, but it was yeah that's that's that is my overriding memory of of early days supporting Palace and then obviously going since uh, and having a season ticket for a while So who starts bringing you to the games then? I went with mates I think the, the first time I ever went I, I was taken by a, a, a friend of the family a, 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 um, the parents of, of, of a kid I was friends with at school Um but no, I, I, I weirdly, I only started going regularly when I started taking my brother, my younger brother along. So we would go to the Homesdale Road End, which was a terrace at the time, back in the in the days of uh, pre all seater stadium and um i would i would we'd get into the ground and i would deposit my brother who would would have been about nine eight or nine at the time maybe ten uh, at, the, at the front of the terrace behind the advertising hoardings right behind the goal and then i would go up and join a couple of mates um about halfway up the terrace uh, again behind the goal and just trust to luck that he didn't do anything daft at the front because I, I had all that <laughs> responsibility for my parents you, you look after Andy don't don't let him wander off and then he joined me post-match um, and we, we'd meet in the same place in the middle of the terrace and we walk home together um, but that, that was it. it was just a mates thing it was you know you go with your friends and 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 I go now with when I go as a fan to, to Palace I'll, I'll go with my brother still and I'll go with uh, with mates of, of mine and mates of his and we've, we've just been doing that for years those stories sound like they come from a different planet you know what they, they, they feel to hear that now. it does feel like a different era I mean back in those days it really was standing on a on a terrace um, smelling the cigarette smoke tobacco smoke everywhere the uh, <laughs> you know the, the, the onions frying in the in the place at the back and the the dreadful toilet facilities at the back of the sand where people were basically <laughs> just weighing up the wall that's what you <laughs> did I mean it was but it but it was palace I mean that that was what football was like and I, I, you know fans up and down the country would 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 probably empathize with with that and, and share similar memories I imagine and we all share the memory of the, the smell and the toilet I think that's the same for every single (laughs) club that there's ever been it's always terrible Um, so when you start going to watch them what division are they in? The first game I saw, they're in the second, the second division, the old second division. So that is now the championship now, second tier, basically. Yeah. And it was uh, during the Steve Coppel era. So we were sort of vaguely pushing for promotion, which we secured a couple of seasons later. Um, and then I had a season ticket again back at that level. I've never had a season ticket at Palace when we've been in the top flight, um, but largely because of work commitments. I'm sure if I wasn't doing the job that I do, then I would be, I would be season ticketing down at at Sellers uh, Park during this uh, this period at the moment. Uh, so, for those who don't who don't know much about uh, the club, maybe you could give us like a, a history lesson on it. Oh, well, it's situated in South London, as you said. If you look at if you look at London as a clock face, it's pretty much at six six o'clock down south. Um, it was technically founded in 1905, although you don't want to mention 1854. Or, I'm going to mention 1861. <laughs> I'll go with that. Um, okay. I mean, yeah, there there have been very recent suggestions, and and 
and valid ones, really, that, that there has been a football club situated and, and called Crystal Palace Football Club since around 1861. Uh, your, your listeners probably, there's no reason they should know this, but, but in, in London in the 1850s, in 1851, there was something called the Great Exhib- Exhibition under uh, Queen Victoria. They set up this huge, spectacular glass um, exhibition hall uh, in Hyde Park in central London. And it was sort of there to showcase all the various plunder from the British Empire from around the world, whether that basically, be from, yeah, yeah, I mean, that that is what it was. It was, yeah. it was, it was the original theme park, if you like. Um, and then in 1852, when the Great Exhibition closed in London, they, it had been so popular that they decided to to deconstruct this glass st- structure and take it uh, about eight miles south I guess um, and deposited on the highest point in London which was the hill at at what has become Crystal Palace Sydenham Hill and uh, rebuild it and it was there from 1852 I think and and burnt down in 1936 but but this venue which this theme park with complete with dinosaurs around the scenic uh, boating lakes which are still there to this day um was also a sporting venue so it, it, ho- it housed um, sorry it uh, hosted the original FA Cup finals um, you know cricket test cricket etc um, and it had a team made up of the the workers the laborers the cleaners the staff at the Crystal Palace itself which was known as Crystal Palace Football Club and that existed from 1861 and the professional club in its in its current guise was really only founded in around 1905 and it, it wasn't situated at the Crystal Palace uh, building for, ver- for very long um, they've had various different homes before moving to Sellers Park in I think the 20s I'm, that's, that's bad I mean for not knowing I think it might have been 28 Um but yeah, so it has <laughs> very recently, as in in the last year, has attempted to claim to be the oldest professional football club in the world. Um, I, I suspect that, or well, the FA will certainly never ratify that, so I imagine <laughs> it won't ever be the case. But yeah, it's been based at Sellers Park ever since. It's 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 never been a successful football club in the sort of Manchester United Liverpool sense of the word it's never won a major trophy uh, the best it's ever really got have, have been uh, promotions to the top flight promotion trophies uh, <laughs> a, a, a domestic cup competition called the Zenith Data Systems Cup which they won in 1991 which was like the third domestic trophy and doesn't even exist anymore um and the highest, it had a remarkable season in 1991 when it fin- they finished third in the top flight, but were denied European competition because that was the the year that uh, UEFA decided to ban the end. Well, no, end oh, the, yeah. the ban. So Liverpool came back in. Liverpool finished second and came back into uh, European competition for the subsequent season. And Palace, who'd, who'd been assuming that they would be getting it throughout, uh, were denied it at the last. And, and that still remains a bone of contention even now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a family club, it's a small club, but it's a club with a huge catchment area. If you think about uh, South London and the amount of footballing talent that comes through South London, mm. even even now, I mean, I mean, look, look at Jaden Sancho playing over in, in Dortmund, South London boy, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Callum Hudson-Odoi, 
um, Wilfred Zaha, Aaron Wambisaka. It, it, it's it's sort of it's a hotbed of of talent, the likes of which the UK probably doesn't have anywhere else. Really, uh, the sheer numbers of, of of players coming through on the streets of South London and. Uh, Palace have had moments where they've tapped into that very effectively. They had a, you know, the, the back in the early eighties, they had a very, very good youth system that developed a lot of young talent and um, brought them through into the England team. Some of them, mm. Kenny Sampson and the likes. Ian Wright, um, Ian Wright, of course, as well too. Well, Wright, yes, he's a South London boy, definitely. But um, we picked him up when he was a bit older. He he sort of escaped the uh, the the youth. We'll probably come on to him later on. I'll probably come back to Wrighty. It's impossible <laughs> to talk about Palace without talking about Wrighty. Um, but yeah, it's it's that is what Palace means. It's it's a sort of synonymous synonymous with uh, South London and and the youth of today. And and I, th- I think they're they're tapping into that more and more now, which is very positive for the future. And you know, people for the for the fans to get behind, especially if it's local boys. Absolutely. Look, I mean, very clever marketing, maybe, but but they've they've very much gone South London and, and proud behind their behind their sort of slogans and brands in recent years. Um, and they've they've lent on the likes of Wampasaka, most notably Wilfred Zaha, mm. um, who grew up again a stone's throw away from the from the ground. Jason Punchins, another one who who was there for a, a long period in this in this most recent spell in the in the top flight. But you can go back. Gareth Southgate is a Palace youth team uh, development boy. Uh, um, Richard Shaw, John Salako, all these guys have had fantastic and and often international careers. God, when you think about it, there is quite a lot that came through Palace now that, now that you mention it. It is, it's, it's, it is, as you say, it's a, it is a hotbed. I mean, yeah. and a lot of it has escaped the nest. A lot of it has, I mean, these days in particular, in the last, the last 10, 15 years, a lot of it has gone to Chelsea. I mean, there's no way that Ruben Loftus-Cheek or or uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi should really be going to to Chelsea, but because they had the best academy in the area, they they attracted them those those names and and those those kids developed their their games there. Palace have now gained Category One status for their academy, so I think that the future looks looks very bright on that front. And Chelsea paid you back by uh, paying homage with their their new away jersey this season, which I <laughs> thought was quite nice of them. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of top moments for the club, you you don't. I believe there's been too many or at least there's not been too many successes I, I was going to suggest the, the Cantona Kung Fu kick <laughs> um, uh, well look there's a I mean I wrote on the Athletic on this it's it's that's an infamous moment and it had it's it's, it's a point of contention I mean look, I think we whenever you talk about whenever you talk to a Palace fan about the Cantona kick or while they'll condemn the absence of uh, Simmons who, who was the, the fan involved they will also point to the fact that uh, a Crystal Palace supporter died later that season in, in in clashes with Manchester United fans ahead of the FA Cup semi-final at Villa Park at a, outside a pub in Walsall. And, and the, the sense is very much that... And it was, in fairness, it was decreed at the time in, in, in court that the tension that afternoon prior to that semi-final um, which led to the clashes was very much born of Cantona of Simmons's abuse and Cantona's kung fu kick so whilst the world sort of I don't want to say revels in it but but 
but is yeah is drawn to that that moment as a as a almost a moment to celebrate really um crystal palace fans aren't um it's it was a a desperate time and, and we all we all remember the death of paul nixon and and yeah and, and thoughts go out still now to his his family and friends so it's definitely one of the the lower the lower moments in palace's history yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely but there have been highs as well i don't want to don't want to lower the well, tone yeah, too yeah, much. yeah no no here's your here's your chance to sell it then Tom. <laughs> look i mean look, I, i'd still i still go back to that to that Coppel era Steve Coppel was a former Manchester United winger uh, who became he had to retire early he got, he got a terrible tackle playing for England a Hungarian player basically snapped his cruise shirt all over the Oof. place and he, he, he little did, did Steve Coppel know that he, but even after the surgery his cruise shirt was never actually repaired he only found out about a couple of years back that he'd been living without a cruise shirt ligament in his, in his knee wow. um, and, and doing marathons and ridiculous things like that so quite quite remarkable man but Anyway, like he came to Palace in his twenties as a manager when we were sort of struggling and then rebuilding in the second tier, and over a period of time built a, a side that that I think a lot of Palace fans of a certain generation, certain era, will still connect. Uh, keenly with uh, a lot of players who are maybe damaged goods who come from other clubs uh, youth team players players that whose whose opportunity appears to have gone I mean Ian Wright was the prime example of that a player that had been rejected by Brighton rejected by Millwall uh, was working for a chemical company I think somewhere in south in Deptford in southeast London and playing football part-time for a club called Greenwich Borough um, Palace took him on trial and Coppel's immediate reaction was this kid can go on well this this he wasn't a kid he was 23 24 I think this guy can go on and play for England um they bought him for a set of dumbbells and uh within a few years he he had been capped whilst playing for 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 Palace he he'd scored two goals in an FA Cup final for Palace in 1990 as a substitute he'd scored 20 league goals the following season as Palace Palace finished third in the top division he he has became an icon but that little period of certainly in the, the first division days of from from promotion in 89 through to uh, the end of the Coppel era in 90 first Coppel era in 93 that was a high point generally that's when Palace gained their one major trophy in the ZDS Cup that's when they got to the Cup final for the first time in their history um that was a a giddy period in palaces in palaces history i think similarly you look at the current period i mean we've never palace as a club have never enjoyed eight years consecutive years in the top flight before in their history and they're, they're, this is their eighth year now um and uh, they've gone through countless managers um but they've generally been a mid-table team they've had they flirted with relegation on numerous occasions but you know this this is a team that has regularly blooded the noses of elite clubs across the country we've already won at Old Trafford this season 3-1 I know everybody wins at Old Trafford usually by six these days but, <laughs> but, but Palace Palace won 3-1 there when, when people weren't used to doing that um, last season they did the same they won 2-1 there then they won at Manchester City they were unbeaten their last five trips to, Man- to the Manchester clubs uh, they've beaten Arsenal they've won twice at Stamford Bridge they're the last team to have won to have beaten Jurgen Klopp's Anfield uh, sorry Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool at Anfield in the league um, it's it's uh, it's been remarkable what they've done um, almost quietly over the last eight years um, so that that counts as 
as a, a high point in its in their history. Uh, just the question about Wrighty. Uh, obviously, he's he's always associated with Arsenal now. But how do how do Palace fans look at him? Is he still he's still seen as a, as an icon there? I guess. Yeah, I think it's coming back. That those of us who lived through Wright's departure to to Arsenal um, and subsequent kissing of the Arsenal badge after he scored against Palace in a League Cup semi final the following season. Oh, that's never forgotten. Yeah, that that it, it has taken. Well, it's taken twenty eight years, twenty seven years, twenty eight years to for people to really accept that. Yeah, that that that's, we can let bygones be bygones and remember the good times. Um, it, just because it felt at the time when Wright and Bright were playing up top, Mark Bright being his his strike partner, and Palace were finishing third, it felt like the club was going places. There had been that you know the, the chance snatched away of playing in Europe. That summer of nineteen ninety one um, was a missed opportunity for Crystal Palace Football Club because if they if they'd gone out and and did for example what Leeds United did and spent a bit of money on on two or three new players, Leeds finished fourth the year that Palace finished third. Uh, the following season, Palace bought nobody of any note, finished tenth which is still the second best ever in their history, but they finished 10th. Leeds bought two or three players and went from fir- fourth to first and won the, won the title the following season. So that was a missed opportunity for, for Palace. And, and, and Wright's departure was all part of that because uh, he, he left about a month into the into the 91-92 season and went off to Arsenal. And, and look, that was his dream move in the same way that, you know, Wilfred Zaha would love to be playing for, for Arsenal. Arsenal seems to... <laughs> Uh, infest parts of South London in terms of (laughs) (laughs) its fan base that's the way of the world Um, and that's that's absolutely fair enough I I can accept that that, that Wrighty wanted to go there but it just took a while it was very raw for a long time for a lot of Palace fans and I think now I think people look look at him with with a certain fondness I think people have forgiven I think he said the right things at the right time in in recent years Um, and look Palace fans were guilty of giving him an inordinate amount of stick when he joined Arsenal. I think there was graffiti sprayed all over his mum's house. So it wasn't as if we were we were all sweetness and light and and doing all the right things at the time. It was it was a very bitter divorce. But I think there's now been a reconciliation and and uh, we celebrate that Ian Wright was once one of ours. Before we move on, just a little one more question about a, another Palace striker from uh, I think he joined in 1997 and was uh, Lombardo. <laughs> yeah, that was a weirdly. That was the year that I was working for the club, and that that oh. season, I, I I was hired as a. This is before I joined the Guardian. That I was just fresh out of university, and I was hired as a program editor for the season. And um, <laughs> yeah, Palace had gained promotion to the top flight again, and Steve Copple was back in charge for his second spell. Uh, was it a third? It was a third spell technically, um, and. A a new owner came onto the scene, a prospective new owner came onto the scene. Somebody wanted to invest in the club, a a fan um, who had made a lot of money in in uh, computer and recruitment. This is Mark. This is Mark Goldberg, right? Mark Goldberg, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he struck up this weird relationship with Juventus, which which saw, as you say, Attilio Lombardo, who was at the time a cult figure in this country because of Football Italia, a program that was on Channel Four, which covered Serie A, and in a time when we weren't really used to having football 
highlights package programs or even live football on the TV. I mean, it just didn't happen very much in the throughout the eighties and 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 nineties mm. until. I mean, it was all you know. Remember, Sky was a subscription service from ninety two. That's that's where you watched live football. You had to have a satellite dish. Um, so Lombardo was this bald, bald winger who played at, at Juventus, had played at Sampdoria before, and he suddenly rocked up at Palace and, uh, you know, the bald eagle. And it was just surreal, a surreal experience. And he, he brought a, another lad, Michele Padovano, with him from Juve a few months later. And I think he's served time since for drug trafficking or something dreadful. So, oh, I mean, wow. it's, it's, uh, they were an in- interesting characters. Lombardo was, Lombardo remains the person I would love to interview most um, as a journalist, just, just because of the sight of him running up and down the wing at Palace and being class. I mean, not, not looking like somebody that was just there to pick up a, a, a late career wage package. I mean, but looking properly good. His, he was the there were very few players on his wavelength. That was the problem. Paul Warhurst, who they'd signed from Blackburn, who was a title winner at Blackburn, was about the only player who knew what Lombardo was going to be doing with the ball. So Attilio would, would, would put over these beautiful passes and crosses and poor Neil Shipperley and Bruce Dyer didn't have a bloody clue what to do with him in the middle <laughs> because they were, they were they were playing a game that, that was still 10 minutes away from starting. I mean it was just it was it was a, a remarkable time. It was an awfully unsuccessful time and in fact Lombardo actually had a spell in charge of the team when despite the fact that he couldn't speak English um he used Thomas Brolin who another another ridiculous recruit um to be his translator and interpreter towards the end of that season as as chaos reigned but that, that that's just so palace so palace um just gonna have a, these surreal moments where everything steadily goes wrong. It sounds so glamorous on paper. Thomas Broly, Lombardo, you know, oh, taking over a South you London know what? club. It, it was it was glamorous, but it, but it wasn't successful. I mean, that, that that was a team that lost eight in the row at one point in the season, finished comfortably, finished bottom of the table. Um, and but that, you know what? That actually. That isn't the first time that's happened in Palace's history. Another another manager, apart from Koppel, another manager that all Palace fans would consider to be an icon was Malcolm Allison, who who made his name at Manchester City alongside um, Mercer as as a, as a title winning management team. And, but he was the he was the flamboyant one where mm. when he was the man who wore the fedora to games and the sheepskin coat and sort of would would stride out in front of the opposition fans before kickoff and taunt them. Um, but, but but was a forward thinker. I mean, some of his tactical master plans and, 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 and blueprints were, were 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 brilliant. I mean, they were they were the, his training sessions were 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 celebrated by all that came through at Palace. Um, unfortunately, they were probably a bit too ambitious for for the the players that he had, and. Although Matt Big Mal is is remembered hugely fondly at Palace and people love him, he actually took Palace from a first division club and made them into a third division club within two seasons, <laughs> um, and then didn't get them back up again. He took them to a FA Cup semi final as a third division team, but they didn't get promoted. I mean, he ended up leaving with Palace in comfortably in mid table in the third tier, and it actually took his successor, his assistant Terry Venables to wow. harness all these young talents that had come through the youth system and created what became known as the team of the 80s because when they went up 
in 78, 79, um, in the autumn of 79, they briefly topped the league. They beat the European champions at the time, Nottingham Forest at home. They were top of the league. Um, and everybody thought this was going to be a, a team that dominated English football throughout the 80s. They were getting crowds of 50,000 at Sellers Park at the time. 50,000? They had, had 52,000 at Sellers Park on the night that Palace got promoted out of the second division uh, in 79. And their average gate was, I think, about the, the, the fifth or sixth biggest in the country. Um, wow. It was absolutely huge. It was all, it was the catchment area being tapped. And yet, still from that position, within two years, Palace found, found a way to, to be relegated and bankrupt. So, I mean, <laughs> it's I never going to get told on. <laughs> it never is. <laughs> um, so, we've already talked a little bit about this season. Um, what, what are the hopes, the plans, the aims? Mid table and uh, maybe a cup run? I think. I think, uh, well, we've already had one cup, so we can't do that one. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think this is a very, I think this is exceptional circumstances this season. It doesn't, none of the, none of the football that we're watch- watching at the moment feels real. The fact there were no st- fans in the stadium just adds to that sort of surreal feel to it all. They're, 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 everybody's got bigger concerns, quite rightly. Um, but I think that, I think that will probably temper ambitions and aspirations, and I think there'll be a bit more realism to to where Palace want to go. I mean, they'd, they'd love to be, they should feel established after after eight years in the in the top flight. Uh, the lowest finish in that period has been fifteenth. Um, they, they they've gone as high as tenth, and and they've always threatened to be a club that might push into that top ten. And that when when the when football was suspended in March. They'd won three on the bounce, and they were far closer to the European places than they were to to the relegation scrap. However, I think what happened post lockdown, where they lost seven on the bounce and mm. sort of settled back into fourteenth, probably just should serve as a bit of a warning as to what might, what could happen. Um, just because it's all so surreal at the moment and you know if there is another period where football is suspended or where there's a rush of games to try and catch up again uh, Palace have still got one of the oldest squads in the division and, and they may suffer they, they it may it, it may cost them um, some of that aspiration for a top half finish I don't, I don't see them going down they've got too much quality it would take a take a, a lot of injuries to a lot of very key players uh, probably principal amongst them Wilfred Zaha still um, for them to be dragged into it but but you have to look at the Premier League and realise that there are only probably six or seven or possibly eight clubs at best who are almost immune to relegation um, so you the first objective for every every season has to be get enough points on the board to, to ensure that you stay in the division. And, you know, they, they won their first two matches, which is a hell of a good start because you're probably a sixth of the way there then after two games. But the last two matches have been a bit of a wake-up call and, you know, they, they'll want to regain some momentum um, after this international break. But, but yeah, ultimately... Now they've got Category 1 status for their academy. There's still plans to redevelop the stadium. They need to work out how to rejuvenate the squad and to revitalise it and to, to bring the average age down and, and do that within a budget that has been probably have lost £30 million due to COVID. 
um, and the restrictions that that, that, that has called and, and the rebates and the and the bailouts for league for the football league etc it's probably going to cost them 30 million pounds and when, when you're saddled with a wage bill of around 100 105 million pounds per year uh, and a lot of players out of contract next summer uh, it is a big rebuilding job so it's yeah consolidation mid-table finish for this year would, would probably do them do them good Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Benny, Francesco and Dominic. We'll be back next week. But should you miss us in the meantime, you can listen to the back catalog on iTunes, Sounds, Cloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast hit. And if you want to get in touch, the address to do so is podcast at onefootball.com.